you'd open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. While you're turning there, you know we, we run different kinds of articles in the bulletin. Some deep theological significance, others dealing with current events. Today we have one that deals with the burning question, why did God make men with the capacity to grow beards? So it is not a command to those of us who are clean-shaven to grow beards, but we can rejoice with our bearded brethren. And so uh, uh, I guess you can call it an introduction to beard theology. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, read that. I think you'll find it interesting, and we can encourage our bearded brothers. I will be honest when I thought of it. There are several guys that have beards, but I immediately thought of Bobby Deloach. Uh, but nonetheless... Because uh, <laughs> he's got a really good beard. But uh, let's, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, again, we thank you for your kindness and grace. And we just thank you, Father, again, just for the privilege we have to come together as believers and to worship you. Father, we know that as we gather, we are a family and that we are, have all, all been adopted by, by God. And we're grateful for that. We know, Lord, that there are some who are in our family who have not had their own families. And we thank you, Lord, they're a part of us. We thank you, Lord, for bringing us together. That, Father, we may bring praise and honor and glory to your name. And, Father, we desire to do that with our worship, with our fellowship, with our working together, with our praying for each other, with each other. And, Father, we ask that you would continue to instruct us through the book of 2 Corinthians. And as we now approach this book again, we ask that you will bless us and grant us the ability to understand and again, a very strong desire to be changed by the word of God. As always, we are again thankful and we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So 2 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 16, it reads this way. I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if, if you do, accept me as a fool, so that I too may boast a little. What I am saying with this boastful confidence, I say not with the Lord's authority, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves. For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you, or devours you, or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I am speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman with far greater labors, for more imprisonments with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches, who is weak? And I am not weak, who was made to fall, 
and I am not indignant. So when we read through this section here, we remember that the false teachers are not ashamed to boast. We've said many times before the things they bragged about. But the Corinthians were not afraid to accept their boasting. And so basically, I guess we could say it this way. Paul seems to be saying, since boasting is the kind of end thing here at Corinth, then I'm going to boast. He's doing that to kind of, you know, it's a jab at them because he wants to point out their immaturity and he wants them to mature. But apparently these guys have really caused some havoc in the church and they have endeared themselves to a degree to a large number of those at this church. And so Paul is just, he is digging in and he's letting them have it again because he wants them to break out of this and grow in Christ. Again, remember that I think it's clear as we have gone through this that he's not trying to get back a loyal following. It's not what he's doing. He's not some politician who has been easily winning his district and now the new guy has come in and those who are following him are now voting for the other guy and he's desperately trying to get them to vote for him again. That's not what he's doing. His concern is for their growth in Jesus Christ. He wants to make sure that they are loyal to him and they recognize the motives as well as correctly judge the behaviors of these individuals because it is detrimental to their growth as Christians. That, that, is, that is his concern and that is what he has been emphasizing. In fact, in verse 20, he says, For you bear it. If someone makes slaves of you, devours you, takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, or strikes you in the face. He, he's pointing out what these false teachers have been doing. So these guys have not just been coming in and they've only kind of downplayed Paul and, and said that they were great. They've done that. But they have wormed their way into this fellowship to such a degree that they have done these things and it's as if the congregation is kind of like going along with this, allowing this to happen. When he says that they've made slaves of you, we know that what these individuals have taught is a doctrine of legalism that was contrary to the gospel of grace. And you know that when individuals sometimes worm their ways into a church, and it's not always in the sense that there's a group of individuals outside the church, and they say, okay, we're going to go into this church, we're going to target this church, and we're going to do these things. That, that does happen. But it can also be just an individual who maybe has a, maybe a winning or maybe a commanding personality, whatever it happens to be, and they, they tend towards legalism, and that's kind of what they promote because we're not in the habit of evaluating what we believe and the way that we believe and, and what we express about the Bible. We should be doing that, but these individuals don't always do that. And so their legalism or their, this teaching of legalism becomes kind of contagious. Rarely will it cause individuals who tend not to be legalists or lean that way to follow them. But, you know, we all have different traits, strengths, and weaknesses. And to some people, that would be appealing. To some people, they think, you know, that's, that makes sense. I mean, so-and-so, he's, I mean, he's, he's, really, he's really righteous. We, we need to be more like that. I need to be more like that. I really know a lot of others who need to be like that. You know, that's kind of what it is. And so these individuals can then begin to cause some divisions. And so Paul wants them to be aware of what's been going on. This is what's happening there. And so some of them have been enslaved by this. When he says that they devour you, 
Basically, these individuals came in and they ate up all they could get in the church. They took advantage of their privilege uh, of receiving financial support. Paul's already mentioned that a few times, and we've kind of talked about the fact that Paul purposely didn't take a dime from anyone in that church, made sure that all of his financial support came from those that were outside and from other churches, so that then he could challenge these false teachers and say, you know, we, you know, because they wanted to take credit for the things that Paul had done. And he says, yes, we both serve God. In fact, if people should evaluate it, I've not taken a dime. How about you? He wanted, he wanted to purposely show the difference between himself and these other individuals and how they had treated these Corinthians for the sake of the Corinthians. Right? He's, I don't think he thinks that these individuals are going to change, but he wants those that he's led to the Lord, those that he's discipled. He wants them to see clearly the motive of these individuals. And these individuals have taken advantage. And that kind of thing continues on in the modern church. It's not, it's not something that was you know, limited to certain times of, of, of church history where individuals have taken advantage of other individuals, uh, whether they're gullible or whatever it happens to be. Like there are some individuals who have a, maybe a good deal of money and maybe they feel guilty. And so they're easily manipulated into supporting what this individual is able to get them to support, which usually has something to do with themselves and maybe a kickback or two. Not always, but sometimes that's how it goes. Those other there are other individuals who have a lot of money who really do want to invest in good things. They really do, they, they want to do that. And so this individual takes advantage of that, not maybe in pointing them to a really solid ministry, but again trying to finagle a way to make sure they get whatever they think they deserve or what can get out of that individual. But the bottom line, that's what's been going on in this church. And Paul wants to bring that to light. And so closely connected to that, he talks about the fact that they take advantage of them. In other words, these guys have come in, they manipulate them, um, and so uh, you know they've kind of found ways to kind of uh, be appealing to these individuals to get them to do what they want them to do and it, it's it's always it's not necessarily just about money it, there's there's money that's involved in this but again it has to do with gaining someone's trust gaining their loyalty uh getting an individual to support you sometimes you can get that person to support you in things that we all agree on and then of course they begin to move towards the toward the edge of an issue and they and they want you to be faithful they want you to follow them uh, and they find ways to manipulate the language so they, they can pull you in this direction. And, and again, what he's concerned about is this is not where you and I try to persuade each other of various doctrine in Scripture. The idea here is what they're, they're trying to pull them away from Paul to follow them, and maybe we could say it this way, to follow them instead of following Christ. You know, they, they pretend that, that they are on the same page as Christ, and they begin to, to simply move in a different direction. Again, I'll never forget, I was stunned when I did this. I began to do some reading many, many years ago about uh, Jim Jones. And you remember that group that went down? Um, and they, they were famous for committing this mass suicide. Where eight, nine hundred, maybe a thousand people all drank the Kool-Aid uh, that was poisoned and they all died. And when you read through the history of all of that, he began his ministry in, in really preaching in a church in, I think it was in Brooklyn, New York. And I guess he was a good speaker. I don't know all those kind of details. But I was surprised when I was reading about how this whole thing got going. The kinds of people that were involved in this church that began to follow him. And, and it's marked out how as he would preach, he would, you know, he would go through the scripture and, and he would you know, basically use phrases, this is what the Lord says, the Lord says this. And he was 
being in a sense fairly accurate with the scripture, but every now and then he would change a word. Instead of saying the Lord says, he would say, I say. And he would just kind of interchange it every now and then. And then more and more it was, I say, I say. And people basically began to accept that, to where that was all that he was saying. And what stunned me was as I was reading kind of a, a brief description of the congregation, that there were individuals involved in the church that were politicians and medical doctors and various forms of academics, whether they were teaching at a college or teaching in high school or teaching elementary school, various forms of professionals. You know, we keep thinking that only maybe individuals who, who don't have much learning would follow this individual. It was all classes of people. It was just always amazing to me that an individual was able to manipulate individuals that we would assume can think. And I don't know how that happened, but it happened slowly, but it happened. It happened. And so the reason why that's important is so that we don't then just assume that we're always beyond the reach of an individual who has the ability by their personality, by the way they speak or what have you, are able to fool us or get us to begin to, to drift away. It can happen to any of us. That is also one of the reasons why we need each other. We, you know, we're looking out for each other in that way. Because we can be deceived. It can happen. I know I can be deceived. I don't want to be deceived. I, I work hard at not being deceived. But I know that I'm a human being. I also know I'm not the smartest guy in the room all the time. And I know that I can be, I can be pulled away. And so if others begin to question me or challenge me, I, that's great. I want that to happen. And we should want that to happen. Not only are these individuals, again, enslaving them and devouring them and taking advantage of them, as it says here in the English anniversary, they put on airs, where the idea is, is these individuals are just, they exalt themselves. They exalt themselves. We, I do think that it's a wonderful trait for you and I to really be cognizant of how deep pride, our pride, can affect us. And we need to have an attitude of, of being against anything that feeds our ego. I think we need to be aware of that. Um, I don't know if there is such a thing that you can go too far with it. I don't really think you can. I, I think individuals sometimes can act as if they're going too far, but it's kind of another way to be prideful. You know, it's kind of like to get someone to say, oh no, you're not that. You're really good at whatever. So we're still fishing for the, for the compliment. But I do think though we should still really be aware of things that feed the ego and and check ourselves on that. I am so against that because I know, especially when I was growing up, especially in high school, my arrogance was just, it was just off the charts. It was insane. I'm just, I'm just so ashamed of it. It's just, it's just, I wish I could do my life over, but I think if I did, I'd make the same dumb mistakes again. But I remember one time I had, uh, in my office, a guy came in and, and I had some stuff on the wall, like a lot of people do, you know where your diplomas are from and recognitions and all those things. And I had a little section of the wall that I had some of those things hanging. And this individual meant nothing by this because he had the same thing in his office, but he said at his job, they call that the glory wall. I said, what? You know, your glory wall. And it was all these, all these things about what you've done and all that stuff. I, I hate that. So I took it down and asked Billy Waters to put up a bookshelf. <laughs> so I have extra bookshelves in my office. Because right? I didn't, I just, I don't want that. I want to stay away from that. And so we, we need to make sure we recognize that. And so here, that's one of the traits of the false teacher. 
is this kind of arrogance. And arrogance can come a lot of forms, a lot of ways, and we need to be aware of that. And then, of course, the last phrase, is, which has caused some people some difficulties trying to understand what Paul meant by this, but he said they strike you. So does that mean that, that, he actually, that these act, they actually maybe slapped some of the members in the face? Some believe that it at least refers to verbal attacks, maybe insulting language, uh, not necessarily physical violence. But, you know, there are some who say, well, in some of these cases, it may be possible that some of these Judaizers would, would publicly embarrass somebody and, and slap them. And, and we know that in the synagogue, that, you know, there was a kind of a corporal punishment that was accepted. Where if an individual was guilty of, of heresy or going astray, sometimes they'd be beat. Paul was, was beaten, he mentions that. Uh, there were some scourgings that took place at the hands of Jewish leaders for religious purposes. So it's not necessarily outside the realm of possibility, but the idea was is that, that they went against these individuals, um, causing them harm in, in this way, verbally, physically, or may, maybe both. And Paul's just simply pointing out, you guys have put up with this. I mean, kind of take a step back and look at what's happening. One, one more story about that whole Jim Jones thing. I just thought this was really weird, but it took place. So uh, before the church left, if they were still in Brooklyn. They had a basement in the church. And so there were times when there were some teenagers who I guess really weren't the most obedient. I don't know if they were causing trouble at the church or at home or both, but, but and it wasn't just teenagers. It could have been younger kids too. But they had a way that the church dealt with that. In the basement was a boxing ring. And the main individual who would hand out the punishment was a lady that weighed between three and 400 pounds. She put on boxing gloves. And they might take your 11-year-old and put on boxing gloves, and they'd have at it. Well, guess who won? And, that, and so, again, you're reading this, and parents and others are there watching this take place, approving of what's happening. How do you get there? I'm always amazed at how that takes place, but it, it happens. It's not as unusual as you think it is. Maybe the boxing thing is, but again, that, that kind of manipulation and, and physical violence that takes place among any kind of a group. So again, we, you know, we, we need to, to be alert. And again, that's one of the reasons why we need each other. Uh, and we need to, to talk about things and be aware of what's going on. Paul says in verse 21, kind of tongue-in-cheek to my shame, I must say, we were, we were too weak for that. See, the Corinthians thought that Paul's meekness was weakness. It was really strength. And they thought that Judaizers' arrogance was power and strength. Again, those who were aristocratic in their background boasted in their heritage, their accomplishments, and so forth. And so when it came to that, they normally were, there was an abhorrence to those who suffered. Because that's really what Paul is getting at now. Remember, this is one of his, his key, um, one of the key elements in his life that, that he reveals as kind of a, a, a badge that, that represents that he is genuine and authentic and that he serves the Lord is his suffering. He, he does glory in his weakness as an individual. It's not about how great he was. Now remember that Paul really was an intellectual. Paul was brilliant. You know, Paul was not some dummy. He was brilliant. He was well-read. He could argue with the, with the best of them, and he would win arguments. 
You know, this guy had, had a great philosophical mind, a great logical mind. Uh, he, he had incredible endurance, but he gloried really in his weakness and, and what he wasn't and how much the Lord was and how he was dependent upon the Lord and how the Lord used him, but all the glory and all the honor, all the credit went to the Lord without Paul pretending to be a man who had nothing. He, there's never any pretense in the things that he did and said. There was an Austrian psychiatrist, some are, are familiar with his name, it was Viktor Frankl. He was uh, imprisoned by the Nazis in the Holocaust and he wrote a, a couple of books and, and papers about his experiences when he was in the concentration camps. Um, they're quite uh, revealing. Uh, most of us may be kind of familiar with what goes on just because it's so much a part of the history um, that we learn growing up in school, at least it used to be. Uh, but one of his more famous books is a book that he wrote that was called Man's Search for Meaning. And, and in that book, he's talking about uh, the great suffering that they went through and was making observations about those who survived and those who didn't. And that they, uh, in fact, I, I believe that in some of his writings, and I can't remember if it's that book specifically or not, but he said he could tell, because um, you know, they're all weak and they're all being tortured and they're all you know, barely being fed, but he could tell when an individual was about to die because they were, about, because they were giving up. When they gave up, you, just, you could tell that person would be dead in 24 hours. And it's exactly what took place. And in that, he said he learned a very important lesson from all of his suffering. And he says this, there is nothing in the world, I venture to say, that would so effectively help one to survive even the worst conditions as the knowledge that there is a meaning in one's life. And what we should immediately think of as believers is God has infused our lives with meaning and purpose. We don't have to go searching for that. We, we've been placed here to bring glory and honor to the Lord. That really is significant. There are a lot of great books and articles written about, you know, kind of fleshing that out for us to help us to understand. So we don't want to diminish that into some being some kind of just, you know, empty cliche that we throw around. There's a great deal that, that, that of truth to that. Now, that's not what he was talking about uh, because he was, not, he was not a believer in Jesus Christ. But he did hit on this idea that, in, that a human being can go through the worst, which is what the Holocaust, if, if you read about what was going on in the concentration camps, it is inhumane in every way. And yet many did survive. Um, and, but the ones who did had this thing in common. Paul continued on about his suffering, um, and he did have a purpose that sustained him. In fact, he mentioned this to the leaders in Ephesus. I'm going to read from Acts 20. This is what he says. He says, Now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me. Nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. He understood what his mission was, what his purpose was. He believed in God wholeheartedly that he was going to continue until he had accomplished all that God wanted him to accomplish and basically, he was not going to even be able to die until it was his time. And so that did not give him a resolve to act foolishly, 
but it gave him that courage to go forward. So he knew this, as he said. He didn't know specifically what was going to happen in Jerusalem, but he did know this, that the Holy Spirit said that wherever you go, this is going to follow you. You're going to have trouble. You're going to have tribulations. You're going to be in chains. You're going to have beatings. And he says, that doesn't move me. Meaning, that, 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 that doesn't deter me from what I'm going to do. I'm still going to Jerusalem. I don't know what, what's going to happen there. It's probably not going to be good, but I'm going there anyway because this is what God wants. When he says, I don't count my life dear to myself, he wasn't suicidal. That's not what he was. But the instinct to survive was not number one. So he's not volunteering to die, in a sense, unnecessarily. But the bottom line is, is he's not allowing, fearing for his life to dictate his decisions. He was going to do what's right regardless. That was secondary. And again, what he says in the end, he was he wanted to make sure that he was going to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. You and I also have a purpose. We have a task. God has called each and every one of us to bear witness of our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's for all of us. Where, where your home, your work, your neighborhood, wherever you are, we are to testify of the graciousness and the grace of God and Jesus Christ. We may not suffer as Paul did. In fact, I believe most of us will not. But we can find our faith in our faith a meaning that will help us to walk steadfastly through all of life's toughest experiences. Please don't allow yourself to think that that only means that the toughest experiences of life entail only being persecuted. It may be that. But we all are going to face times in our lives where we're going to experience a great deal of pain. It may be emotional pain. It may be physical pain from some ailment that you have. We need to live through these experiences as Christians. The world needs to see a difference. There are times that that pain may be great. Remember that part of that is not just to put us on display to the world, but God is also working in your life as an individual. He is purifying your faith. And it may be that when you are in the midst of great, great, immense pain, that the Lord is teaching you that his grace is sufficient. And though it doesn't feel like it is, and you may feel like you've been abandoned, in the end, you're going to get through that. In the end, you're going to get through that. You may even feel like God has abandoned you. I've had that conversation with people before, that they said, in fact, they're mad at God, because when I needed him the most, he wasn't there. I said, I don't think you really believe that. They go, no, he wasn't there. I go, I believe deep down inside, somewhere, there was a little bit of absolute faith that God had not abandoned you. You didn't know what was going on, you didn't know why, but you weren't renouncing that. And they all said, well, I mean, yeah. I said, okay. That's all the faith that it takes. And you learned absolute dependence upon him. He never promised that, in deliver, that he would deliver you from the pain. But he has promised he would deliver us in it. That doesn't mean we don't have to suffer. We will suffer. Some of us more than others. We don't have to be afraid of it. But it's, it, and when I say that, I'm not trying to say that it becomes easier. It does to a degree when it comes to our, maybe our, our mental and spiritual strength. But it doesn't mean that somehow maybe the physical pain is diminished or the emotional pain is diminished. It may be great. And that reminds us of the horribleness of sin. We should be angry at sin because that's, that's what's causing all of these things. And look forward to the day when the Lord's going to return and this will all be done away with. But in the midst of that, he will not abandon us. 
And remember that when you don't feel his presence, remember that we live by what? Faith, not by feeling. I don't feel the presence of the Lord, but I know he is there because he said he would never abandon me. And I know that's true. And there are times that perhaps we need to go through that experience to strengthen our faith, our trust in him, that he is there. And we look back and we can see that he really was there. And he really helped us through. As Paul talks about his suffering, I want to read to you from the book of Deuteronomy, verses 1 through 3 of chapter 25. It reads this way, If there is a dispute between men, and they come into court, and the judges decide between them, acquitting the innocent and condemning the guilty, then if the guilty man deserves to be beaten, the judge shall cause him to lie down and be beaten in his presence with a number of stripes in proportion to his offense. Forty stripes may be given to him, but not more, lest if one should go on to beat him with more stripes than these, your brother be degraded in your sight. So there's this instruction here about how to punish an individual based on whatever's going on. That they, It's decided as to how many lashes, but not more than 40. So Paul says five times he received lashes from the Jews. There was 39. Um, it reads literally 40 stripes save one. Just so you know that the reason why it was 39, one of the reasons, was so that if a man was beat with 39, they could say, well, we were merciful. Because it says no more than 40. They, they, they didn't go to the maximum. I, I mean, I'm serious about that. That, you know, we showed mercy. So that tells us, by the way, that's written that that was, that was Jewish leaders that were, that were beating him in that way. And, and again, that wasn't where they were just, they weren't hitting him with a wet noodle. You know, they were beating this man with probably great vengeance and hatred. Um, but nonetheless, they did that. Again, as I mentioned before, as we read here in, in Deuteronomy, this is a punishment that was administered by the synagogue courts. And so again, the strokes were given with a rod. They were done in public. It was a kind of punishment that was practiced in Assyria and Egypt, as well as in Israel. Uh, again, as I mentioned, the uh, rabbis actually officially codified that so that it would always be 39, uh, not, not 40. And they specified that so many hits, you know, like if you were being hit a certain number of times, they would then dictate how many would be on the back, how many on the front, how many on the right shoulder, how many on the left shoulder. Then he says uh, in verse 25 of 2 Corinthians, he says there, three times I was beaten with rods. So when he was beaten with rods, that's an indication that um, he was beaten by Romans, right? Because the Romans were the only ones who would administer beatings with rods. In Utley's handbook of, 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 of the Bible, he says this refers to a type of Roman judicial punishment. Again, probably administered publicly by a city court. When that was done in each case, it is believed that, they, that when he was being beaten, they were unaware that he was a Roman citizen because you couldn't beat a Roman citizen that way. And there was one time where he kind of brought that up and the, the guard was very afraid because they could get in trouble for doing that. Um, you, know, you, you did not administer that punishment or even crucifixion to a Roman citizen. Um, and so, uh, but, but nonetheless, he, he had that, he experienced that. He mentions being stoned. Uh, he was shipwrecked three times. We have one that's recorded in Acts 27. He talks about uh, a night and a day being adrift at sea. Uh, it was considered back then that if you were in the water overnight and uh, you were saved, that that was a miracle because you just didn't survive that. Um, 
Uh, verse 28, he says, and apart from the things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. So I want to just kind of camp on that for just a moment, because I think this is important. Because when we talk about anxiety today, we keep talking about it, it's something we need to be relieved of. We know, I know, we know it's a sin to worry, right? There is a difference between worrying and being concerned, maybe very, being strongly concerned. Paul here talks about feeling and experiencing daily pressure because he has anxiety over what's going on in the churches because he greatly loved them. In the same way that you would have a great concern if all of a sudden you get a call from one of your kids that one of your grandkids is not only ill, but they're in the hospital and, and the doctors don't know what's wrong and they're suffering and they may not make it. There's a lot of anxiety that immediately builds up inside of us. And so, again, I'm, I am always, as you know, I, I come from this stance. I'm troubled by individuals who immediately want to find a pill to get rid of their anxiety. I just, I don't, I just don't think that's a healthy way to live life. I really don't. Uh, I do think that, number one, we, we, we need to experience anxiety. There's reasons for that. And, and we get through it by depending upon the Lord and upon each other. That's who God's given us to get through these things. But let me read you uh, two verses. First Peter 5, 7 does says, Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. That's where we go. We cast our anxieties on him. That doesn't mean they magically go away. It doesn't mean you no longer feel the pressure. We're able to, we're able to bear under that burden because the Lord shoulders that with us. And sometimes that anxiety is great because it can motivate us to do things. It, gives, it can give you an energy uh, maybe to accomplish things you wouldn't normally accomplish. It, it moves you. Uh, no matter how tired you may be physically to do maybe something that needs to be done. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 says, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of, of great difficulty. We're going to experience that as we get closer to whenever the Lord's coming. We always know it's always getting closer. It, the Bible tells us there's going to be a lot of pressure on us. I, I, I think that pressure can be a good thing in this, that it drives us to the Lord. Sometimes that anxiety drives you to, like, like, again, if you get that call from your kids about your grandkid, how many of you would not immediately think or utter a prayer to God? That's the first thing in my head. That's the first thing coming out of my mouth is I'm praying to God. You know why? Because I know he can do something about it. I know I am powerless. I'm also pretty far away. But even if I was there, what could I do? But I know God can. And I'm immediately coming to him. When we go through great days of, of this increasing difficulty, that may really be a, a great uh, a medicine for our lack of prayer. And so we, we begin to pray more. That's a good thing for us. The New King James reads that verse that I just read, 2 Timothy 3.1, but know this, in the last days perilous times will come. The NIV says, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. And the Amplified says, but understand this, that in the last days will come and, and will set in a, a perilous time. Perilous times of great stress and trouble that's hard to deal with and hard to bear. And I just, I'm convinced that God's answer for the Christian is not for us to go and seek out drugs for this. That we are, we need to band together and pray to God because there's something to pray for. And it's not just what we're suffering, it's what we're thinking about. It's what's going on around us, not just to find a way to escape. 
When Paul says, who is weak and I am not weak, and who is made to fall and I am not indignant, basically what it is, it's this. Paul has a sense of responsibility for the churches, which is made up of believers, made him very sympathetic to every struggling and suffering Christian of whom he was aware. And so the question then, who is weak and I am not weak, implies that Paul entered in fully with the weakness of the brethren and took them to his own heart. The previous recitation of his troubles and hardships made it clear that he was no stranger to personal misfortune. And so he could readily sympathize with those experiencing some kind of weaknesses. And so that's what he means by that. So as God continues to work on our hearts, what should develop within us is a greater love and appreciation and concern for each other to the point that we actually begin to feel anxiety or the burden of what's happening in the lives of others, whether it's a physical uh, problem they're having uh, or uh, primarily I would say spiritual, usually those things can't be combined, but we have this great empathy for other individuals and, what, and what's going on. And, and then we pray for them and then also are moved to try to help them if we can, if there's anything that we can do for them. And Paul has proven that's how he has dealt with these individuals. And these arrogant teachers, they haven't done any of that. And Paul says, I want you to, I want you to see that. Who's concerned for your soul? It's not some superstar, well-spoken, eloquent, you know, preacher man who's a celebrity. Nah, it's, it's Paul, the guy with the, you know, the bowed legs and the knobby knees and the bent over back and maybe a squeaky, you know, irritating voice. It's Paul. Paul who had the real authority from God. He loves and cares for you. And this is evidence of that. And so again, the scripture tells us clearly it holds Paul up for us. God preserved for us this record and preserved even the words of Paul when he said, imitate me. And so we, we want to imitate the mature and maturing character of Paul as a, as a growing Christian. Not because we want to go out and suffer, but because we're going to in varying degrees. But we want to make sure that we're living this life fully as one who's committed to Christ. And I know that, and I, I believe this will be true, that in our lives, normally the ones who have ministered to us the most are the ones who have also experienced these things and have come through the other side loving the Lord. And they've been faithful. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, we thank you for your grace, your kindness, your goodness. Father, for those here this morning who may be experiencing great suffering, maybe it's physical, maybe it's intense pain or difficulty. Perhaps, Lord, it's, they, they, they're going through maybe being severely rejected by those that they're very close to. It could be some other things that are weighing heavy on their mind. It may be the salvation of one of their children or their grandchildren. Father, I pray that you would strengthen them and that they would turn to you and lean on you and that we, Father, would empathize with them and seek to share their burden. May we, Father, operate as a church in which the world becomes jealous of what we possess. Not because they will say that we are great, but they will recognize that we are acting in a way that defies human explanation. That there must be a source of our strength and our kindness, and that is Christ. And Father, for those who do not know you, who are experiencing these things, we pray that they would literally feel the absolute devastation and emptiness of their position in life. 
and realize, Lord, that all the ways of man are not going to help them, except maybe for a little while, and that they would see their need of Christ, that you would heal them and that you would comfort them. We also ask, Lord, you prepare our hearts as we get ready to share together in communion, as we have set aside this time to remember the sacrifice and the shed blood and sufferings of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We do thank you, and we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.